to another edition of T Watches a Scary Movie. I, of course, am T, and we are talking scary movies. I appreciate everybody tuning in. I know it's not Wednesday, but occasionally these things happen, and we got to roll with the punches. So I appreciate everybody taking the time out to watch this new episode, even though you're watching it likely not on a Wednesday night. With that being said, if you want to make sure you're getting the first alerts for when new episodes are going up, which typically are Wednesday nights at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, just make sure you're going to the link located right here. Because if you go to this link right here, that's to our YouTube page, you'll get alerts set up for that that'll let you know when I'm uploading new episodes or even any other videos that I'm choosing to upload at the time as well too. And if you go to this link located right here, this is to our Facebook group. The Facebook group will have all the information on things like our watch parties. We typically do a movie every Wednesday night after a new episode. This past week, we actually got through Bram Stoker's Dracula. And then every Saturday, we go and watch a bunch of scary TV shows. So right now, uh, we're doing Are You Afraid of the Dark, Spawn, Black Mirror, Tales from the Crypt, uh, The Stand, and Hannibal. And with uh, the stand set to finish here in the next week or two, we're actually likely going to uh, push in maybe some like Dexter following or uh, Castle Rock was suggested as well, too. So we're going to figure out what we want. We're going to pop it into the space of the stand. But tune in Saturday nights at 730 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. You got to go to that Facebook link, though, in order to make sure you're getting alerted for when new things like that are going up. Okay. So, um, I tried to find something good to talk to y'all about, and with Valentine's Day being right around the corner, I figured it was a good idea to talk a little bit about things like love and relationships and how they're really represented in horror. Uh, a lot of times, horror actually does a better job of showing off relationships with people just because they're not really taken for granted. Like in a lot of other genres, action being the big one, um, having people in a relationship, you know, whether they're dating, whether they're married, whether it's uh, a male protagonist and, you know, there's a female protagonist and, or you get what I'm saying. Like they tend to like make it incredibly simplified. It can be misogynistic sometimes. And it's really not that interesting. A lot of times, depending on the genre you're watching, you don't really get the right like representation of relationships out there today. Horror does a really good job with that, though, just because when you really think about it, um, a lot of the times horror is like so female oriented and focused that we get a chance to actually uh, revel in the deeper parts of relationships. Like, yeah, you know, we're always going to get in a lot of like classic horror movies. We get nudity and like sex scenes and stuff like that. But that's not really what we're talking about. Like, how do relationships get portrayed? In all of these movies so that's what I wanted to talk to y'all about I figured this is a good good topic to hit on with Valentine's Day coming up and there was a few movies specifically that I chose to bring up here to focus on uh, Candyman Bram Stoker's Dracula which makes sense because we just got done watching that as well too Valentine my boyfriend's back and interview with the vampire so I want to dive right into Candyman first and understand we're not really reviewing these films the way that I typically review them. I'm not really going to get into like, you know, the kills and the horror and stuff like that. You know, they're scary. You know, they're good, especially ones like Candyman and Valentine, which I talked about during my um, my scary movie watching back in like September and October. But let's start with Candyman. OK, uh, Candyman, for those of y'all who have never seen it before and it's most 
basic explanation is about this guy with a hook instead of a hand who, if you say his name five times into a mirror, he comes, he shows up and murders you. But again, that's the most basic way to explain that movie and what it's about and how it works. In truth, what we know about Candyman is more of a gothic love story with some big horror elements in there. Candyman is played by Tony Todd, uh, is actually a former son of a slave named Daniel Robitaille. And Daniel Robitaille made his living in the late 1800s as an artist. Um, he basically he was a great drawer. He had these paintings everybody wanted. And he was hired at one point to draw this photo of this woman who just so happened to be white. And basically everybody found out and they had this relationship, Daniel and this woman. And the town basically formed this mob that came after him and uh, they, they tortured and gruesomely like maimed him and then eventually murdered the guy. And the legend of Candyman kind of sprung up from there because the idea was is that he was taking in revenge on people who didn't believe his legend and, you know, they killed him with bees. So bees is a part of his motif as well, too. But fast forward to at the time, modern day, we're talking early 90s, of course. And Helen, portrayed by Virginia Madsen, is doing uh, basically doing a thesis, uh, uh, doing a, a project here, kind of focusing on the legend of Candyman and urban legends and uh, specifically a project called Cabrini Green that has dealt with a lot of uh, a lot of not terrorism in terms of, you know, terrorists, but as if they've been terrorized repeatedly at this project and. Uh, through, a, through a mist of different things going on and stuff, uh, Helen becomes the eye of the Candyman. Now, we find out later in the film that Helen, you know, we get no, no direct confirmation of this in this film, at least. But Helen could be a descendant or the reincarnation of Daniel Robitaille's love. You know, the woman that he basically ended up getting killed for because he had a relationship for. And the thing is, is that throughout the film... We're spending time like watching as Helen's marriage deteriorates, her sanity uh, deteriorates, how everything around her is just in shambles. It's all falling completely apart. Yet this Candyman, who is doing these horrible, horrible things, you know, he's killing people. He he is terrorizing Helen in this as well too, but he wants Helen. It's not it's not as simple as you know, he's saying, be my victim. And the one interpretation of that could really just be is like, look, I just need to kill you. That's all I want. That's all I care about. That's all I need. But when you really take the time to think about it and get into like those deep layers and a lot of the subtext that's in there, it's not as simple as Candyman is just telling Helen, I need to murder you in order for, you know, whatever I'm planning to be complete and be successful and things like that. No, that's not really it in the least bit, honestly. Realistically, Candyman knows that Helen has some kind of connection to this woman that he was in love with and he wants her to join him. It's not just about him being able to kill her. It's more about she gets to join him in this existence that he has because, you know, he's been around at this point for hundreds, hundreds of years and presumably killing just hundreds of people who are dumb enough to invoke his name and his presence and things like that. And what's, what's so interesting about all of this is that like, you know, based on Helen's research and everything that she's dealing with with her husband, who's played by Xander Berkeley in a fantastic role, by the way, uh, 
it might be so easy for Helen to just abandon everything that she's fighting for and just give in to the Candyman because clearly the Candyman wants her. And clearly he has more interest and has more to put into this relationship or this interest with Helen than Helen's own husband can. But yet it's obviously not a healthy one because it's going to end in her death ultimately, you know? Um, but it's so interesting to think that it, like from the standpoint of the candy man he's going to try to get this woman no matter what like she doesn't get a choice in the matter he's even willing to kidnap and eventually murder a baby in order to get helen to come to him to be his victim to to like he says victim but it, it's bride he wants her to be his bride he wants to rekindle this love that he ultimately lost his life over in the first place you know that's that's a big role in this film um and it's part of what makes this so good. You know, there are other gothic love stories out there. One uh, more recent one that a lot of people saw that I'm not a big fan of, Crimson Peak. And a lot of that really has to do, I think, with the marketing, that the marketing tried to make it like very much like, oh, it's just a ghost story. It's the scary ghost story. You know, it's a haunted house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, that's not really what Crimson Peak was, was ultimately about. It was more so about, uh, you know, Tom Hiddleston and... Um, uh, the girl who played Alice in Wonderland. I forget her name now, but it, it's about the relationship these two characters have and just how tragic it all is and the lives that they're leading. And, and I ultimately didn't like it just because I walked in expecting something completely different. But Candyman's kind of interesting because Candyman finds a way to keep up like those traditional horror tropes that we like and that we enjoy and making that exciting and scary while still putting in this really like inventive and creative love story between the Candyman and Helen and it, it's so interesting that the sequel that's coming out later this year hopefully is a direct sequel to this because if you watch even the second Candyman film they explore a little bit deeper about some of these themes they pretty much confirm that Helen basically is like the reincarnation of Daniel Robitaille's love and she had a daughter and now Candyman's targeting you know, uh, targeting her daughter as well. And there's a lot of really good themes in there, but the quality isn't on point with the original film. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, this could easily be regarded as just a gruesome, scary story about the first vampire. And, but the tagline of the film, which is love never dies, actually gives away what this story is really about. Yeah, we got Count Dracula, we got the Brides of Dracula, we got Van Helsing, Stakes Through Hearts, uh, and there's even werewolf sex uh, with Geysers of Blood later on. But Dracula seems to be something that you have to watch a few times to really understand what Francis Ford Coppola was going for here with it. Now, if you've seen one Dracula story, a lot of the plot points are going to be the same through all of them, okay? Dracula was a warrior who returns home from a ba battle against the Turks, I believe, to find out that his wife has committed suicide. She was mistakenly told that Dracula was killed in battle, and she didn't want to go on without him, so she kills herself. And Dracula, absolutely enraged, upset, mad, you know, because he feels that he's on, like, like, if you research a lot of this, you know, that, like, very religious guy and everything, but he renounces and curses God for what happened to his wife, and is given newfound powers as a vampire uh, to basically enact his vengeance. Now, what's really interesting about that point itself, before we start talking about like the rom the romance parts of this film, is that I think the idea was always given that 
you know, he stabs the cross with his sword. It bleeds. He drinks the blood. Clearly, that's from the devil. He's renouncing God. He's selling his soul right now. So clearly, it's the devil that's doing this. But in the last, like, ten years, I've kind of been thinking about it differently, that that doesn't really make sense. Like, wouldn't it make actually more sense that it was maybe God doing this because God's cursing him? Because, you know, we're always led to believe in a lot of these films. Vampirism is not actually a gift. It's actually a curse because you're going to live a long like lonely existence so there's no necessary reason for us to think that it is uh the devil that's doing it but i digress to the point at hand here um we fast forward 400 late uh 400 years later and you know we're also given an implication that dracula's probably been doing all the typical vampire stuff in this 400 years between the prologue of the film and where everything else takes place at uh dracula uh, Dracula has a new colleague, uh, a man named Jonathan Harker, who is portrayed by some guy named Keanu Reeves. He's been in a couple things here and there, but I don't know, you know, if he's really gonna have this big career cut out for him. But he meets this new colleague, and he finds out that Jonathan Harker has a fiance back home in London uh, named Mina, and Mina looks very, very, very similar to Dracula's uh, deceased wife, Elizabeth. It helps that both Elizabeth and Mina are both played by Winona Ryder, and that's the clear idea they're trying to get across. But the thing about it that separates Dracula from Candyman is that later on we are, like we do discover, she is the reincarnation of Dracula's wife, Elizabeth. Like, it's not a case of they just look very similar, you know, yeah, Winona Ryder plays them both. Like, no, like, she really is the reincarnation of his dead wife. And Dracula decides he's going to do everything in his power to gain her back. And it's interesting because Dracula is our villain, but he's not really the villain out here, like, looking for world domination or trying to, you know, kill everybody or turn everybody into a vampire or anything like that. No, Dracula is, like, here to get his wife back. He's just also a terrible person that murders people along the way in order to get that done. And what's even more interesting about this is the way that Mina chooses to act on all the information that she's given throughout the film because of course she's committed to her husband Jonathan and you know is longing for him to come back and is just waiting for his return but it's undeniable that she has a connection to Dracula and when she starts getting all this information and figures out again that she is the reincarnation of Elizabeth, Dracula's wife she pretty much decides to commit to him. Like, Dracula's not putting mind control on her. He's not forcing her. Like, to the fact to where even, like, when he's about to, like, start turning her into a vampire, you know, he stops her. And she's the one that has to kind of push him through in order to make this happen because he doesn't want that for her. And that that's Mina making a, a choice about which relationship she's really interested in and which one she wants to pursue. And it sucks because, uh, again, like, if this was just a person, it wouldn't be that bad of a deal. Like, oh, she breaks up with Jonathan, goes off with Count Dracula, and Dracula's just this great businessman, and he's not a vampire, doesn't need to murder people, and things like that. That'd be great. But the problem is, because it is Dracula, we know it can't actually have a happy ending at all. Um... And it's just, inc it's incredibly interesting to go back and watch it because I think a lot of people watch it under the eyes, again, of, oh, Mina's under mind control. And, you know, Dracula's, like, kind of, like, tempting her to do it and forcing her. But Mina's a grown-ass woman. And she's given information that's vital to her character arc. And she chooses, again, to go with Dracula versus Jonathan. 
And I find that so, so fascinating because in a lot of other movies, that wouldn't be the case, but we draw a fine line and this is a different relationship than what we're used to in a lot of these movies, you know? Interesting. Valentine. So this movie has grown a little bit more creepy in this Me Too world uh, that we live in now. And by that, what I mean is that uh, the, the the film has a lot of genius for the motivations behind the killer and, and what he's actually doing. Getting it out of the way, because I've discussed this already and we're over 10 years old there, David Boreanaz's character, Adam, is actually the killer, okay? Um, uh, Adam is a fake name. He's actually this kid, Jeremy, who was picked on by a group of girls when he was younger. Now, these group of girls made his life a hell back in, you know, elementary school. They lied about him. They made fun of him. Um, they, they tortured him. And then they even basically got him beat up claiming sexual assault, which didn't actually happen. And the thing is, is that the motivations of Jeremy, our killer, is to get back at these women who made his life a living hell. Yeah, there's some other people who end up getting caught in the crossfire. Not exactly a huge, huge body count, but his focus is strictly these women who put him through hell. Um, one of the biggest examples in it is that Jessica Capshaw from Grey's Anatomy, her character uh, was the fat girl when they were all younger. And uh, she's the only girl who, you know, doesn't, like, she doesn't turn uh, David Boreanaz's character down, but instead she goes and makes out with the character instead, and she's the one that claims ultimately that he assaulted her. And Adam, or Jeremy, returns the favor by framing her for all the murders that he commits. And if you can't see the irony or the poetic justice in that, then you're not watching the right film because it makes all the sense in the world, you know? This girl is the reason that, like, his life was already bad, but the reason it just went completely in the toilet is because of the things she specifically said. And so the only revenge that he can put against her is to basically murder all of her friends, anybody she cares about, and then make people believe that she's the one that did it all in the first place. It's absolutely twisted but so something about that makes sense and it's so good to see that being like the motivation behind it but what makes it worse and what makes this movie even more creepy when you really have to stop and think about it we learn in the film like we should know we should know from the jump from the poster i've talked about it that david boreanaz is the killer there should be no confusion about that. We get a bunch of red herrings in the film, but I, I I honestly feel that those are there just to like make you think there's some confusion when there really actually isn't any confusion at all. But we learned at the very end of the movie that David Boreanaz's character, Adam, is actually Jeremy. But that tends to make us forget that, so Adam had been dating our lead girl, our final girl, Kate, played by Marley Shelton, uh, they, had, they had dated in the past, and then for uh, one reason or another, a lot of it uh, is said to be alcohol, uh, alcoholism, that you know, Adam's an alcoholic and everything, and you know he's kind of destructive, and that's why they didn't stay together. But Adam and Kate were dating before the movie started and broke up, and pretty much by the end of the film, they're basically dating again. They're back together. And when you think about that, because Adam is the killer, and he's taking revenge on all these girls, he basically is spending not only this entire movie, but events leading up to this movie gaslighting Kate. He might actually love her because she was nice to him 
and said maybe later when he asked for a dance and they were a kid, he might actually love it. Chances are it's probably not, and he's just completely fucked in, fucking warped in the head and believes that he owns her or something like that. But either way, it's kind of scary to think that these two characters were actively dating and enjoying each other and had some kind of relationship before he started killing people, and then he chose to use that relationship to kill all of her friends that destroyed his life as a kid. It speaks a lot to toxic traits that relationships have because I'm sure all of us uh, at some point have known a Jeremy or two out there that's, uh, they're not homicidal, but they're very manipulative and they're just like conceited, they're in their head and they're, they're just an all around terrible, terrible person. And again, it's something really great that Valentine does is that when you stop and think about it, it makes Jeremy, again, that much weirder, that much creepier, that much scarier to actually think that this guy is putting on this charade for so long. Uh, Scream, for example, all right? Scream, like, and I, I want to compare it to Scream because it, it'll make the more sense. Remember, Billy, Billy Loomis and Sydney were dating prior to Billy killing his, you know, killing her mom. Like, they were together. It even says, like, they were hot and heavy and on the way to, like, whatever was going to happen up until Sydney's mom died. And then when she did, she regressed. She stopped being interested in anything else, really, because of this horrible, horrible trauma that Billy, weirdly enough, is the one that caused it there. Um, but Billy actually loved her. Billy actually wanted to be with her up until her mom did it. And then he decided he was going to take out his anger and aggression all on her. Whereas again, Jeremy or Adam dealt with all this stuff as a kid and had a chance to kind of fix his life. And apparently did because he won the genetic lottery. Because if you see what Jeremy looks like in the beginning to becoming David Boreanaz is like, man, you don't really have a lot to be upset or complain about here at all when you really think about it. My boyfriend's back. So, for those of y'all who have never seen this, which is gonna be a lot, this was an early 90s horror comedy uh, that would not work in today's day and age really at all because it is so, so misogynistic. Johnny Dingle has been in love with Missy McLeod since they were kids. And in his hopes to impress her and get her to go to the senior prom with him, he comes up with the ludicrous idea of staging a robbery at her work. Unfortunately for Johnny, when attempting to stage this robbery, a real one happens, and Johnny is killed attempting to save Missy. Now, think about all of that. The entire purpose is this Johnny guy gaslighting Missy in order to win a date over to her. Make her believe she was in some real danger so basically, she's forced to give this, uh, give the guy a date, you know? Um, and that's pretty bad. Right off the jump, that that's really, really bad. Like, like, I'm sure the idea is supposed to be, you know, guys will go through, the, like, anything to get a girl that they want. And, and, like, at one point or another, maybe, like, especially, obviously, it's a 90s film, maybe we thought, oh, that's so sweet. He's willing to just go through anything possible to win this girl over. But... He's doing the wrong kind of job with that, okay? Now, Johnny gets what, is, what he deserves. As I mentioned, he gets killed. Simple as that. But he gets brought back to life as a zombie. And this gives him more time to basically uh, further this relationship with Missy and hopefully get a chance to still take her to the prom in the first place. Now, um... It's interesting that they do give him a, uh, they give him a do-over just because 
like, he gets two do-overs. Not only does he get a do-over to be a zombie and then still try to make things work with Missy, but then at the end of the film, after all this is done and he's chosen, like, I've, I've eaten a few people, I can't do it anymore uh, because, you know, I don't want that kind of life, and so he dies as a zombie. Um, he's given yet another chance to go back and stop all this from happening in the first place. And I, I don't know if we if I can name a movie off the top of my head where one character, uh, one character who did not do anything to deserve all these chances with a girl that he loves, uh, should get all these i haven't seen another movie that's been this kind to a character like this when they haven't deserved it in the least bit at all johnny's not a good guy he tries to eat his best friend during the film um he basically drives his parents to do some horrible things through the movie as well as mom tries to serve him a missing child to eat uh and not only that but missy has a boyfriend she's dating matthew fox in the movie and johnny's actively trying to wreck that from happening uh, this movie's so over the place and I'm saying a lot of bad things like the problem is I don't want to say that it's still okay now because it's it's not it's not times have changed subject matter is kind of hard hard to watch it and like still like oh this is an innocent looking movie but it was funny at the time I used to laugh my ass off watching this when I was a young kid didn't really know that much better but this is a, a example of a guy going through all the wrong all the wrong ways to get this girl that he's into who she has no idea he even exists so you have to really consider that well that's kind of more obsession than it is actual love as well something to keep in mind with that just in case y'all take the time out to watch this movie all right uh and that brings us to the next film here i want to discuss and our last one which is interview with the vampire this is important just because this probably has the the uh, another really good interpretation of obsession that borderlines sometimes on love but definitely not in a good way um whether it's brad pitt's character louis uh tom cruise's lestat antonio banderas's armand or even kirsten dunst claudia the film takes the idea that vampires have this long boring and often lonely existence and tries to turn it on its head to show that you know if vampires don't value that much one thing they might actually value in this case is love it's companionship because they can't have that with a human and it was a good choice for them to do that because i think a lot of vampire movies that are out there that we see they they really focus more on the now like okay like this this evil vampire is showing up he's attacking these people what's happening in this exact frame of time in this day in this week in this month um a lot of vampire movies don't really like go across generations or go across a number of years to focus on like vampires like mental states and everything and interview chooses to go that route and of course they have the book to go from hence why these decisions were made but it's it's the right choice to go through because they can't have meaningful relationships with humans and so the only thing that makes sense is them to have these relationships with other vampires so things like sexual orientation doesn't mean jack because again everybody gets with everybody when you're a vampire right now louis played by uh brad pitt at the beginning of the movie uh you know after the interview gets started and everything like that his whole goal uh, his whole thing is that his wife and his child recently both died he's he's lost he's desperate he's in despair he's suicidal he doesn't want to live 
And Tom Cruise's Lestat preys on that and decides that, well, if you're this hopeful, uh, uh, helpless, if you're this, you know, desperate at everything, that maybe you'd be willing to join the ranks of the undead with somebody who's going to give you this gift. But the trade-off is you're mine. You're, you're stuck with me as long as I want you here, basically. And... Lestat's doing it whether you know like we don't really want to factor too much for the book in here because we're really talking about the movie but you know Lestat is literally himself like he's been alive for a long long time he's not the oldest vampire by any means but he's been around long enough to where he knows that there's not really anything coming out of these relationships or interactions with humans and that if he wants somebody to really grow old with him and to enjoy you know whatever there is out there to enjoy in life that he has to have somebody who has nothing to live for. And that's what he gets out of Louie, who has nothing to live for, that maybe they can have this relationship. The problem is, is that, you know, Louie quickly learns that there isn't joy to being a vampire. There isn't happiness. Like, it's just a long life free of pain a lot of times, of physical pain. But that emotional pain can be a lot worse. And he damns Lestat for this. Like, he hates Lestat for basically turning one struggle in his life to now turning into this bigger struggle in his afterlife, in his un undead life at this point. Um, Antonio Banderas is as Armand, uh, one of the oldest living vampires on Earth, and I think he even says it, actually, that he's the oldest vampire that he knows. Um, he's kind of like, he's, he's pulled himself back from living amongst humans and having any kind of enjoyment in life because everything changes everything evolves everything is is always going to be turning and becoming different and when he comes across louis he sees that as a way to re-enter society that this is his link this is his chance to get back out and enjoy some kind of normalcy for at least being a vampire but the problem is is that he wants it so bad and is willing to do whatever to get that that he decides that he's going to murder uh, Brad Pitt's companion Claudia played by Kirsten Dunst and a lot of people uh, never picked that up but in case you didn't that that's entirely what both the film and the book is saying is that Armand had the power to stop Claudia from being murdered by this other coven of vampires but instead chooses to let it happen because he wants Louis all for himself he doesn't want to share Louis he doesn't want him having any attachments to Claudia at all he wants that gone so like Lestat he could have them all to himself and then even Claudia, uh, you know, Louis randomly encounters Claudia one day uh, when he's just, again, he's already a vampire. He's even more desperate than before. He's eating rats and bugs and stuff like that. And Claudia's family is dead. She's on the brink of death as well, too. And he decides that he's going to, he can't control himself. He's just going to drain her. And Lestat, seeing it as a way, uh, both to torture Louis, but also as a way of hopefully making him happy, decides that he's going to turn Claudia into a vampire and hopefully make a family out of the three of them. And for a little bit, it works out. Uh, but then Claudia discovers that she can never age and that while mentally she might learn things and she might mature, but that she herself never will. And she ends up resenting both Lestat and Louis for it. And we go a step further because, you know, it's easy for us to look at Kirsten Dunst in that film saying, yeah, she is just a kid and that's all it is. But as the film progresses, we realize that Louie and Claudia actually are in love as well, too. They love each other. They're, they're companions. But Louie doesn't want her as a companion. He's grown bored. 
and she even doesn't have the same appreciation for life that Brad Pitt's character really does. And so she's trying to cling on and hold on to Louis as well, too. And it's so interesting to watch this film and see that Louis is just this prized dish because it reflects Brad Pitt, kind of uh, his dom dominance of Hollywood. He was still he was still rising at the time. Like, he was already on top, but he was still rising, becoming this bigger, bigger person there in Hollywood. And to think that this is kind of the way it worked in Interview with the Vampire as well, too, that everybody wants him, even Christian Slater, who, you know, his character of Daniel... Louis explaining his life story to him and at the end Daniel's like well you obviously came to turn me this is what you're looking for uh, for ev uh, for everything even with all of that everybody still wants Brad Pitt's character and it's just an it's an example in obsession because nobody gets it this is not something that you want this is all what you think you actually want but when you actually have to do the work and spend the time in these relationships it's not actually something to covet it's not something to be proud of it's not something that you're really going to enjoy at all so i hope these five films are something that allow you to see some of the other romantic or love aspects that horror movies have now they can tell some different stories Think about those points, and I want y'all to tell me in the comments some of the things that you might be thinking with those as well, too. Thank y'all very much for tuning in to another new episode of T Watches a Scary Movie. Don't forget again, subscribe to the YouTube page so you can find out when new episodes are coming up. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Facebook page where you can find out about our watch parties. Remember, this Saturday, we got our TV watch parties going on. Come check out some cool stuff with us. We got music videos and commercials to go along with us with that as well, too. Also, um, I've interviewed a lot of really fun people recently in Tea and Friends watch a scary movie. So if you want to see my interview with the host of Mia Has Questionable Taste, my good friend Mia, uh, we talked the horror works of Stephen Summers with Deep Rising, The Mummy, and Van Helsing. You can watch that right here. Yeah, you can watch that right over here. Uh, also, if you want to see my interview with the writer and director of the holiday horror classic, Santa Slay, starring WWE superstar Bill Goldberg, uh, writer-director David Steinman, you can watch that episode right here. Yeah, it's going to be right there. You can check that out. And then, if you want to see my interview with my good friend and uh, comic book and television artist, Mr. Ian McGinty, you can watch that episode right here. We did a spicy chip challenge. We ate the one pake, uh, pake, pake, uh, hot chip. And then we talked a lot of bunch of scary stuff. Check those videos out, folks. Make sure to subscribe. And as always, I'm T. We've been watching scary movies. Stay scared.